Our passage today is Psalm 37, 1 through 11. I encourage you to turn there and stand as we read God's holy word. Prepare to be inspired, influenced, changed by it. Psalm 37, 1 through 11. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He'll bring forth your righteousness as the light, your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way. Over the man who carries out evil devices, refrain from anger, forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for your word, for these important reminders from Psalm 37 and the admonition to not be fretful, not be anxious, not to be worriers. Father, may you teach our souls today. Help us to calm the restless anxiety within us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, you may recognize Psalm 37 or at least a sentence or two from it because we had looked at specifically the the middle of that passage when we were talking about anger a few months ago. But there are other riches to mine from this passage, particularly the encouragement to counter our tendency to worry and be anxious with such things as delighting in God, trusting in Him, and remembering our inheritance. There was another passage that I asked you to read this week, and that was Philippians 4. 4 through 7, and in it we read these words Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And as you look at those words, you see, well, the the theme remained the same several millennia later. This passage, like Psalm 37, repeats countering anxiety with delighting in God, rejoicing, trusting in Him. And unlike Psalm 37, Philippians 4 doesn't mention our inheritance, but we do find Jesus doing that in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 and 6 when He says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That's a quote from Psalm 37. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys. Thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. So I tell you, therefore, do not be anxious about your life. Don't be anxious about your life. Not what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And 
And so here Jesus is quoting David in Psalm 37. And if Jesus or King David had asked the Israelites to whom they spoke, whom did they think would inherit the earth? I wonder how many of them would have answered the meek as the answer. I'm sure that as they heard David in Psalm 37, they would have liked the first part of the psalm. They would have liked words like evildoers will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. There's nothing not to be excited about there. They probably wouldn't have had difficulty with the next several verses. He will give you the desires of your heart. Amen. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him. He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light, your justice as the noonday. Those are all great, wonderful promises. And perhaps the Israelites thought in David's day that God would use Israel to do those things, to execute judgment as he had in the days of Moses and Joshua. But then there are those frustrating verses, verses 7 through 11. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Be still. Wait? But injustice means it's time for action. And then it says, fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way. But God, I thought you were saying they're going to perish. I mean, can it be sooner than later, right? How can we not fret if our land is being overrun by the perverse wicked who seek to change and redefine everything that is sacred and and fundamental to the functioning of our society? Then there's a verse, for the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Okay, those who wait on the Lord shall inherit the land. Good, so blessed are the patient. Is that what that means? But then there's more. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully in this place, will not be there. That's excellent. Because patience, we can handle patience if we only have to exercise it for a little bit, Right? But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The meek. As you read those words, do you you mean the ones who get run over by the wicked in the midst of injustice? So we, you know, if we put ourselves in the place of those who are hearing these words, I think we too would be puzzling over them. We'd see this balance of great, wonderful promises and then frustrations maybe, or, or at least puzzling things, waiting and patient and don't be frustrated when they prosper and the meek will be the ones that inherit the earth when we think that the ones who inherit the earth are the ones who fight for themselves and for their rights. Well, we talked last week about the noise that develops in our souls when we are enslaved to worry and fear and anxiety. And maybe that describes you today. Noisy inside. What is preventing you from being still and trusting in God and waiting? Think back on your life. How many times has the Lord been there in a time of need? How many times has he delivered you even when you didn't trust in him specifically? Can can you think Of many times, maybe you can't. Maybe you think of just a few times. And if you can't remember specifically, perhaps you can think through all the times in Scripture that God delivered His people. Exodus 2, 23 is a good example where we read during those 
Many days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and he heard their groaning. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. He saw the people of Israel and God knew. Now God didn't leave town for 400 years. And I'll one day happen to hear the cries of his people and go, oh yeah, I forgot. He later tells Moses that life taking place in the land of Canaan, he was allowing the sin of the Amorites, the sin of the people that inhabited that land to accumulate, to multiply, to ultimately result in judgment. But he was with Israel the entire time. But now, according to his timetable, he was going to rescue them. And the psalmist in Psalm 94, 8, reminds us, Understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? You heard in Exodus 2, he heard their cries. Well, the psalmist asks, God did make the ear after all, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, you know, at the end of Exodus 2, it says, and God knew, the psalmist here says, he who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. So why would we think that the Lord does not hear when he created hearing? It's a great question by the psalmist. God hears, he sees, God knows. In fact, he hears, sees, and knows everything. So why don't we think that he hears, sees, and knows our needs? You see, when we worry and find ourselves occupied with fears or concerns about the future or helplessness in the present, our fleshly tendency is to protect ourselves, to mitigate the damage. We try to anticipate future outcomes and we pick the ones that lead to our greatest comfort and our least damage. But that's not always God's purpose. He gives us what we need when we need it and intends that we trust Him rather than our own strategic and tactical plans. Moses told Israel in Deuteronomy 8.3, God humbled you. He lets you hunger. Ever been hungry for a while? He let you hunger and he fed you with manna, which you didn't know, nor did your fathers know, that he would make you know that man doesn't live by bread alone. Did you ever think that God might be letting you go hungry in a few areas of your life, not just physical food, but maybe physical money or, or other types of things, that God might be allowing you to be hungry so that you know that you do not live by bread alone? but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Do you believe that God cares about you? How do you respond to a passage like Matthew 10, 29? Are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them falls to ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. God Hears, he sees, he knows, he cares. That's the story. That's the 
That's the example from Scripture and the, and the flat-out statements by Christ that those are true. So why is it so easy to trust the Lord when things are going well, at least well as we define it? It's easy to rejoice in those times, isn't it? But what does Paul say in Philippians 4? To rejoice, be joyful in the Lord always, all the time. Even when things are falling apart, especially then. That's when you're most tempted to stop trusting in God and give into anxiety and fear. Anxiety results from trying to have one foot in your kingdom and the other in the kingdom of heaven. What do I mean by that? Anxiety, as we saw last week, typically either arises out of a sense of being out of control in the present or is produced from worry and fear about the future. And both are related because in them we realize our powerlessness. And when we think that we need to be in control, that's the moment that we are keeping one foot firmly anchored in our own kingdom. Particularly since we want the power to determine outcomes that fulfill our own purposes. We would always have our children happy. We would always have plenty of money and so on. But does that reflect God's typical purpose? During John the Baptist's time, he grew concerned that things weren't happening as he expected. Judgment wasn't coming quickly enough and justice was still rampant. From jail, he sends disciples to Jesus to ask why. And what does Jesus say? He says, tell John that the blind are receiving their sight, the lame are beginning to walk, and so much more, John. The kingdom is here. God is at work. And it's come specifically and most particularly in in me. How many times have you asked a similar question to John the Baptist? Lord, are you king or should I look to someone or something else? And by that question I mean, are you going to put me in control? Well, what does God say? I am the king. And I am in control. And my ways are often not your ways. In fact, wouldn't you agree that from the examples we have in the Bible that God's ways are often asking us to even be more vulnerable? In Matthew 19, 21, always a great example. The wealthy nobleman, young ruler, comes to Jesus, says he's interested in becoming a disciple in his mind. He's given up everything to follow Jesus, but then Jesus nails the perfect thing that he hasn't let go yet. If you be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. I know in our minds we say there's a disconnect, but there's something in our lives. There's something probably in your life that is the one thing, right? Hard to let go. Maybe it's your possessions. Maybe so, like the rich young ruler. But maybe it's something more like choosing the direction that your family's going or the assurance of your children's salvation or your marriage and changing your spouse. I don't know what it is. But Jesus would say to you the same thing. Give it up. 
follow me and you will have treasure in heaven. And perhaps we would walk away as well, sorrowful because we can't be in control. It's my money, it's my children, it's my spouse, my marriage. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And worry, especially worry about our possessions, tends to draw us to our own kingdoms that are built on weak foundations. How can they not be when they are built on our own purposes, built upon our own timetables, and our own understanding of the big picture? And I'll add to that worry about relationships and, and more. Our families, our marriages, God asks you to give up everything. Give up trying to fix your spouse. Give up trying to make your children happy and successful. Don't expect that all of your fears will be relieved at once. See, Jesus wasn't telling the rich young ruler, right, to go give up all of his possessions and then follow Jesus because Jesus had better and greater possessions materially for him to have, like he was going from one position of wealth to the next. Well, Jesus would tell the disciples, count the cost to follow me because it's going to be a tough road. And so when he asks you to give up the things that have become idols for you or becoming distractions for you or keeping you one foot in your own kingdom, he's not saying that I'm going to replace it with exactly the things that you gave up. What he's saying is I'm going to replace it with joy. I'm going to replace it by having you store up your treasure in heaven, which is an eternity with him. It's so much better. God doesn't relieve all of our things, our fears all at once. His kingdom typically moves forward in these tiny increments sometimes. By small acts of painful obedience, we want instant answers. But instant answers do not tend to develop trust that endures through persecution or injustice. It's important that you realize that. I think we live in a time of society where more than any other time before us, we are used to and want instant answers, instant solutions. What drive through Christianity. But that type of answer does not tend to develop a trust that endures. And so what do we do? Well, we offer God help. Well, technically, we act as if God isn't there at all, or that he has these long-term, he has big-picture answers, and he's left us to fend for ourselves, because we don't like to be hungry. Not for very long, and so we go out looking for our own food. What does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 1.9? Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope and he, that He will deliver us again. Did you read that sentence? On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. That is the life of faith. 
That's the only way to stop fretting, as Psalm 37 says over and over and over again. Be not fretful, be not fretful, be not fretful. It's through the life of faith, which is the hope that he will deliver us again, even when you may be sitting in a prison cell. Even when you may be having endured a life of peril and injustice. If we don't find our life and strength in Jesus, if we don't continue to nurture the hope of deliverance, trusting that he is in control, then we will go from one worry to the next, always out of control, always anxious, and there is no shortage of wickedness, injustice, or partiality in this world. There will always be things to be anxious over if we allow them to keep us focused on our own kingdoms. Do you believe that Jesus will deliver you again or that he only delivered you once at the cross and now you have to save yourself? Walter Marshall was a Puritan who lived in the middle of the 17th century, same time period that the Westminster Confession's being written in England. And as a pastor, he experienced times of paralyzing anxiety. He would rehearse in his mind all the ways that he fell short of God's standards and how he was not doing enough in ministry. And he finally sought counsel of two names you might recognize, Richard Baxter and Thomas Goodwin. And those men told him that, what, that while he seemed to have an accurate understanding of many sins, he was missing an important one. The sin that he wasn't considering was the sin of thinking that Jesus Christ died only to save him and that he did not have to, that he didn't live then to sanctify him, that Jesus didn't live to sanctify Walter Marshall. Marshall's faith didn't seem to Goodwin and Baxter to embrace a Savior who daily works in his people to do and to will his good pleasure. Instead, Marshall found himself trying to please God on his own and as a result, constantly anxious. And maybe that's where you struggle with anxiety. Perhaps as I described a fear of the future or a lack of you know, this powerlessness in the present, you said, well, I struggle a little bit with those things. But that's not the main thing that makes me anxious. What I worry about is letting God down. I don't think he's happy with me. And because of that, I think he's left me on my own to try to regain his favor. He saved me at the cross, is what that's saying, but I need to keep myself going to keep setting the goals for my life and family and make sure they meet them, to, to keep control over the people and the things that would make all of this come crashing down. And if there's one thing that I've seen is a consistent theme in the lives of church leaders like Marshall, it is the tendency to measure their success by external factors, particularly growth in church numbers. And some of these make it a little more sanctified, and they say that they see success as people growing in spiritual maturity, because after all, Paul talks about in his epistles about growth and in, in the people being a source of joy, but what Paul means is it's a source of joy. It's not the measure of my success. But the rest of us do the same thing. 
It may not be the external factors of church growth, but it might be whether or not my child is maturing, or whether my spouse is godly, or if there are funds in the savings account. And if we apply these kind of standards that external factors determine my success, then what do we do with someone like Isaiah? How successful was Isaiah? From the very beginning, God told him that no one would listen to him. Not a single person would listen. Where's his church? No one's going to listen to you, Isaiah. And when God commissioned him to go, Isaiah said, I will go. And Isaiah preached the truth. He was rejected entirely and eventually martyred. By all sense of external factors, he was a total failure. Was he successful? Absolutely. He was successful because the criterion for success is your obedience. If you obey God and love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, as we saw earlier, you will be successful even if your child departs from the faith. Or your spouse doesn't change. Or you lose your job and you're always struggling with enough. Are you like Marshall trying to make personal righteousness the ground of your peace as a believer? If so, then you're likely living under stress. Because when we measure success by external factors, when we desire foremost to know what is effective and what works for the Christian life, the search for this effective way to solve our problems and earn God's blessings will more often than not lead us to follow the principles of the world and not the paths of holiness. And we'll use those formulas as our way of gaining control and trying to guarantee our desired outcomes. And guess what? It's just another way of trying to be in control and failing to trust God. We give in to the illusion that what we have to do is figure out how to make life work that we're obligated to do what is right in order to win the blessings that we desire. That is the way of the world, which follows the philosophy that if we do what we're supposed to do, then we get what we want from a God who rewards good behavior. It leaves us in control of things. We become the initiators and the actors. God becomes the reward giver and the responder. And what Psalm 37 and Philippians 4 and really the whole Bible are pointing us toward is a different perspective. One in which we don't want God's blessings as much as we want God himself. And we realize that it's only when we abide in him, when we stop trying to solve all of our problems on our own, in our own kingdom, with our own purposes, that we can even think about attaining to a holy life. It's a great irony of Christianity and following Jesus. Do you desire to be more mature in your Christian life? Of course you do. The perspective of the world says, well, since we're in control and God rewards our efforts, then what we should do is read some books and listen to podcasts about the spiritual disciplines, and then start practicing them, and the goal is to get to the next level, and we'll measure our success 
by whether or not we're reading our Bible more today than we did yesterday or remembering to pray for so-and-so and gaining a little more control over our tempers, we may also find that our anxiety actually increases in the midst of that because we never seem to live up to the standard that God expects. We're still struggling. The other perspective, what I think is a biblical perspective, says if our ultimate desire is God, the presence of God, and abiding in Christ, then the spiritual disciplines, which are good in and of themselves, they create a space for a merciful and sovereign God to work in the depths of our hungry souls. It's not about reading extra chapters next day. It's not about praying for five more minutes. It's about being available to the God with whom we want to be in relationship. And I realize that that first perspective doesn't seem all that bad. Getting to the next level of self-control is not a bad goal. But when it becomes a higher goal than drawing near to God, the tendency is for us to live life trying to make things work. Trying to figure out how to solve our own problems. And it's just another way of thinking like Walter Marshall. God saved me at the cross. Now I need to keep myself in the faith. And that, as we've seen, is a recipe for anxiety. Because formulas and systems work to an extent. We might find that counting to ten and staying calm rather than venting our opinions actually helps our marriage or that fasting for a day helps us remember some of the real spiritual issues facing our community. But I do want to convince you of something, and that is if you think that those principles are ends in themselves that will produce a holy life, you will be mistaken. You will simply become more anxious. You may, in fact, end up farther from God than when you started. Why do I say that? Because there's this weird tendency in human nature. When we tend to try to make this life work in our own kingdoms, we we also tend to become proud or discouraged, self-congratulating or self-loathing. When a Christian parent consistently practices a godly approach to raising children in order to see them turn out well, and when it works, there's this great temptation sometimes towards pride, though it's often disguised as gratitude. You know, yes, my children are turning out pretty well, but that's what we should expect for following God's principles I spent quality time with them. I prayed for them every day. And God is a prayer answering God. I know we must do our part. And by his grace, I think I did. Not perfectly, of course, but pretty well. I set clear boundaries. I was involved. See, when the law works, we are tempted to think, I did what I was supposed to do. And God blessed my efforts. And now I'm enjoying the blessing of godly children. But here's the flip side. We also end up discouraging the parents who tried just as hard to do it right and now ache over a rebellious child. When the law doesn't work, we assume that we didn't follow it very well, at least not well enough. Someone failed, and it was probably us, and we become more defeated than trusting. But I have good news for you this morning that there is a better way. 
we cannot do anything of merit to win heaven. The Christian life is not about doing what is right in order to win God's blessings. The Christian life is not about growing up into the maturity of a good self-image and then developing the energy to do good things. It is about growing down into the brokenness of true self-understanding and deepening our awareness of how poorly we love compared to God's standards. Friends, I'm not saying not to... Not to be obedient to God, not to follow his principles. But I am saying it's, it's not about working hard to get it right so you can present yourself before God to receive the reward you desire. It's about coming before him as you are, pretending about nothing, becoming increasingly convinced that you can't get it right, though you try as hard as you can, and then learning to rest and abide in him. In Philippians 4, Paul said, Be anxious over nothing. Rejoice always. Realize that Paul is writing this letter at the end of his life as he's sitting under Roman house arrest, remembering his many travels, knowing that his time of ministry is coming to an end. But he couldn't help but be joyful at the memory of his time at Philippi. And he begins the letter saying, I am confident, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. I won't be there to see it, but I'm confident that it's going to happen. If you think about that, what benefit would there be for God to begin what Paul says is a good work in us by calling us, by redeeming us, and then uniting us to his son if he did not have a plan to preserve us. Do God's good works ever fail? They do not. And so as Paul writes in Ephesians 1, in him you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, and then listen to this part, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. And so here we see that Paul says that God has given us this guarantee of an eternal inheritance And that guarantee is the Holy Spirit himself who has sealed us. Paul never says, be faithful and try hard to make it. Some of you will. Why not? Because our faithfulness nor our working is the key, but rather it is God's faithfulness God starts the work, and because it is his good work, it doesn't fail. They're never unfinished. They're never incorrupt. They're never corrupted. They don't start out good and, and then end a failure. He calls, he promises, he seals, he completes. He's said to be the author and perfecter of our faith. He never plants trees that don't bear fruit. In Romans 8, Paul says, no created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so if God loved us enough to choose us, to purchase us with his Son, to die for us, to bring us into union with Christ, and should we wonder whether he will preserve us in that love? The answer is no. It's an abounding no, right? He paid the highest possible personal cost 
to save us. He died for us. Will He not continue to pay the cost to purchase us? You know, will He not pay the same continued price, if you will, of His life work to preserve us? That's what Romans 5 says. If when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, Paul says, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved by His life? It continues. The Lord of the universe hears you. He sees you. He knows you. He cares about you. He has given you an inheritance. He has sealed that with the guarantee of the promise of the Holy Spirit. He calls you to trust Him, to rest, to be still, to wait, to be patient, to look at the stories and examples of the past because God has always been faithful. He's always heard, saw, cared, known. He's had a purpose that's been un unfolding before he ever built the foundation of the world. He told Adam the end at the beginning. And let me suggest one more thing that I think is a good insight. This is, comes from author Ed Welch. He writes, the kingdom is God's. And that's not exactly a radical thought, but it is a jolt of reality to hearts that always want more. This is why I like right here. Owners are the ones who do all the worrying. Stewards simply listen to the owner's desires and work to implement them. Owners are responsible for the outcome. Stewards strive to be faithful. This sounds better and better until we realize that the king can tell us what to do with our money. But my money is sacrosanct. Don't ask my age. Don't tell me how to spend my money. But the owner wants us to invest in spiritual assets. He wants to keep us dependent and on the edge. But that's what got us worried in the first place. He finishes, the kingdom is about God and all of his people, and he expects his assets to serve all of them. You are not the king. You are the servant of the king. You're the steward. It's a good insight. The reminder that stewards aren't the ones responsible for doing all of the worrying about the owner's assets. I am called to be faithful and to follow the owner's instructions, whether it's money, my children, my spouse, you name it. If I remember that I'm a steward of my children, that God has called me to be faithful in training them, I can realize that I am not responsible for the outcome. Nor am I responsible for changing my spouse or my sibling or my parents. And if I remember that I am a steward of my money and that it all belongs to God, I can be more joyful about generously giving it away, living on less or not keeping up with the neighbors next door. After all, God owns everything anyway. And Psalm 37 says, that you will inherit not just a few thousand dollars, but the world. Long before God promised Israel the land of Palestine, He gave man the earth. In Genesis 1, God told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue and rule over every fish of the sea, the fowl of the air, every living thing that moves upon the earth. And what Psalm 37 is telling you is that when you become a believer, you enter God's kingdom, you receive title back 
to this original inheritance that was given to Adam and Eve. And Revelation 20 verse 6 says that ultimately all believers will be kings and priests of God and of Christ that shall reign with Him over what? Heaven's new earth. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians 3 that has helped me see how this promise of inheriting the earth can reduce my tendency towards anxiety. Corinthians trying to constantly outdo one another, compete with one another. So Paul starts in verse 18, let no one deceive himself. If you think, if any of you thinks that you are wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly, it's foolishness to God. For as written, he catches the, the wise, you know, wise in quotes in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. All things are yours. All things are yours, whether Apollos or Cephas or Paul or the world or life or death or the present or the future. It's all yours and you're Christ's and Christ is God's. Think about that logic. Let no one boast of men because everything belongs to you already. And one of the things mentioned is the world itself. Should I be so concerned about injustice and the wicked prospering at my expense if I know that their time is short and my father owns the city and I am the beneficiary in his will? I will one day reign with Christ in eternity over all of this. If you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, that is, if you trust Him and commit your way to Him and wait patiently for Him, God has already begun to help you, will help you more. He has begun a good work, He will finish it, He will complete it. Same is true of your possessions, your your spouse, your children, everything in your life. He's already begun in you, and the primary way that He will help you is to assure you giving you the guarantee of His Spirit to begin with as that down payment, as that promise that He has already gifted you with everything. You are a fellow heir of Jesus Christ. And He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all will He not freely give us all things with Him. That's a verse. That's the truth. God spoke that truth to you. All things. There is no good thing that he will withhold from those who walk before him, including the earth. So I want to challenge you, if you've been living in the other perspective, the need to be in control, the need to determine the outcome, set the goals, the temptation to be impatient, think God has the big picture and the long-term vision in place, but he's wanting you to take care of the details. If you've been tempted to say, I cannot trust in the Lord because my family is too important, because my job is too important, whatever it is, I want to exhort you today to let go of those things. Let them go. Let God avenge you. Let God work through you. Let God be the one whose kingdom determines the purposes and know that yes, he will deal with all of these things that concern you, but it may not be with instant answers. But can you be joyful about that? Can you be slow to anger? Can you be quick to listen? Can you be teachable in heart? Psalm 37 talks about, can you stop fretting? 
and be still. If you will, you will know peace and the favor of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the words from this psalm and how they instruct us in a way of trust. Lord, you've called us to to serve you, to rest in you, to be patient. Lord, you've reminded us that we don't save ourselves either at the cross or afterwards. We don't sanctify ourselves. We don't work to continue your favor. We are responsible for the salvation of our children. We are not responsible ultimately for their rebellion. We are responsible for being obedient and trusting in you. And it's so, it should be so liberating. Father, that's what you've been trying to tell us, to rejoice at all things by being freed from this need to be in control and from this anxiety over knowing that we are not in control. Help us, Lord. Calm our spirits. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.